I'm Susie Wiseman, and this is Jacobin Radio. We begin today with Iran, the site of a massive uprising since the end of December that spread to every corner of the country. Kevin Harris, UCLA sociologist and Iran expert, joins us to explain the underlying structural factors that have added to the heightened levels of discontent with the Iranian political establishment, the persistent poverty and inequality that are driving it, but are not the whole story, and how the grievances of workers, pensioners, teachers, and students ignited the country to protest the Rouhani regime's economic performance and press for social justice. Also on Jacobin Radio today, we talked to economist Dean Baker from the Center for Economic Research, who has some innovative ideas about how California can get around the tax cut plan passed by the Republicans that directly target California and other relatively high-tax states that also have relatively decent public services. We'll also get his take on the state of the economy, unemployment and wage growth, whether we're in a new bubble, and why the media does such a bad job informing the public on economic issues. All this coming up on Jacobin Radio. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Very pleased to be talking to Kevin Harris for the first time in this segment. We're going to be talking about Iran. It's been rocked by a rare wave of protests over economic hardship and lack of civil liberties for the last several weeks. But the streets are not the only battleground between the Islamic Republic and its critics. There's also a cyber battle going on. And it appears that the wave of protests might have waned a little bit, but that's probably due to repression and lack of support from the middle class. Those are questions that we'll ask Kevin Harris, but it's part of a pattern that we've seen before, and that's because of the conditions that have not changed that generated it in the first place, which is a threat to the regime, and on the other hand, tells us something about the economic background to these struggles. And that's why I've invited Kevin Harris on is try to understand what's behind the latest eruption of popular protest and to see what, if any, impact the Trump presidency and his tweets have on the situation. Kevin Harris is joining us. He's the UCLA historical sociologist, and he is the co-director of what we call here the Brenner Center, otherwise known as Sistich, the Center for Social Theory and Comparative History. He studies development and social change in the global south and is the author of A Social Revolution, Politics and the Welfare State in Iran. That's published by UC Press. And he also has an article in New Left Review last year, now 2016, I should say, called Making and Unmaking of the Greater Middle East. With all that, Kevin Harris, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Thanks, Susie. Very good to have you here. So I guess we should really just begin with, first of all, where those protests are and what are the underlying causes of this, let's call it an uprising this time. I think the word uprising is valid in this case. Uh, The listeners uh, of your great show should know that uh, at least by breadth, if not depth, but by breadth meaning to the geographical scale of protest in Iran, this is the largest uh, uprising or, or protest wave um, since the 1979 revolution. And I say that as someone who lived in Iran during the 2009-2010 Green Movement. I saw it with my own eyes. Um, it started on December 28th 
uh, reportedly out of a large city, not a, not a small town, but a large city, the second largest city in Iran, Mashhad, <clears throat> a shrine city that millions of pilgrims visit every year from around the world. And reportedly, although this hasn't been confirmed by multiple sources, but reportedly it was a, you know, regularly held a government rally gone horribly wrong for the conservative um, uh, institutions which promoted it. And uh, there's many large squares in Mashhad, and uh, somehow over the, t- over the course of the day, as people joined to this kind of, you know, government started, or I should say government started, but let's say, you know, a particular political faction started protest to protest against the current executive branch of the government led by President Hassan Rouhani. Uh, people joined, the slogans changed, and the cops all of a sudden realized that uh, this isn't the protest that we planned for. <laughs> uh, already by the end of that day, other cities in eastern Iran, uh, as Mashhad is, other cities in eastern Iran, like Neshapur, uh, sh- uh, had a, a, a small protests, videos of which made it uh, online and, and, and perhaps circulated on uh, a widely used social media program in Iran, Telegram, which has is essentially like you can have private, uh, large chats with hundreds or thousands or actually millions of people. And uh, we don't know too much about it, but uh, so far, scholars are still divided on how these things spread. But by the next day, by December 29th, which happened to be my birthday, actually, Happy I spent most of my, <laughs> my birthday online as a result, um, uh, the... New protests popped up in at least six or seven cities in the west of the country, very, very far from the eastern cities uh, and towns in which the first state had. So the, it spread quite fast. Christian geographically jumped over Tehran to the other side of the country, um, and then by the third day had registered so much both in uh, domestic, and I mean actually domestic media by newspapers, as well as uh, you know local um, Local TV even covered the protests, uh, and also, of course, international media. And uh, while the Internet environment in Iran is not completely open, it's open enough that people found out about it. And by the third day, um, so December 30th, protests were spreading uh, all around the country. And, um, and that's when it actually gained the attention both of, uh, you know, basically the world attention of the outside media, uh, as well as you know the the authorities in Iran, the the grievances of these protests range widely, um, and as as anybody who's participated in the protest has, many uh, you know experts in Washington never would step foot in a social movement. But for those of us who, who have participated in social movements, we know that you know protests are democratic in many ways; they're unwieldy. And, you know, they kind of, they, they can get more radicalized as people say militant slogans, other people join in. So the protests got more and more militant in their slogans. Although I should say that almost all of the protests were totally nonviolent. And there are sporadic accounts of violence uh, against a few government buildings. But as anybody knows, in like a huge protest wave like this, Almost everybody was nonviolent, which I was very impressed uh, with uh, the, the the types of protests that I saw. That you know, I mean, the ones I could believe were happening at least. I wanted to ask just one question in this before we get into the you know deeper, let's call it grievances and commonality of these grievances throughout the country. You've mentioned Kevin that this spread throughout the entire country. I saw in an article on Al Jazeera that 
There were 70 smaller cities, all four corners of the country. 90% of the people who uh, took part, rather, in the protests were under the age of 25. The real number obviously could be higher than that. And you also mentioned the role of social media, which the BBC has played up an awful lot as well. But on the other hand, even though there's, you know, we're not seeing as much of it right now, has there been a widespread crackdown? And what's the nature of the repressive response of the regime to this so far? Right. This is a good question. First of all, uh, it's 90 percent of those arrested uh, are under the age of 25. And that was, a, that was a statistic given a few days ago. I think that might have changed over the last couple of days. So, uh, as far as I've seen, again, I, just, I do want to warn listeners. I mean, videos, as, as a scholar of social movements, as somebody I've written about social movements, I've, I've tried to see how people assess them. Um, videos are really bad ways of measuring protest size, of understanding protest dynamics, because videos tend to be shot from an activist perspective, like in the middle of a chanting section of a crowd. And I, I know that, you know, I mean, obviously, you, you feel like you're in the middle of it when you watch the videos, and people can go online and watch some of them themselves on BBC or Al Jazeera. But it's actually very hard to tell how big they are, is repression going on, right? right. However, from the videos I've seen, at least, um, one thing I've, and also as someone who saw real repression in 2009, and I mean, my, my, I myself got a little bump on the head back then, uh, it's actually, the crackdown is not as intense as everyone expected, especially people outside of Iran who continually predict some kind of Tiananmen-style crackdown. Instead, there's what we could probably call something like <clears throat> a bargained, uh, bargained attempts by police forces in all of these cities. And they're not, some of them are small towns, 5,000 population, 20,000. Some of them are not small, 250,000, a million uh, two million. Okay, so you know you, it's not they're not all happening in villages, but it seems like uh, some of the videos I've seen, uh, the local police forces who have been training in kind of riot control and crowd control since 2009, they're a little bit better. They they seem to have bargained. In other cases, it gets out of control and people start getting chased. And I think there's a reason for this, by the way. Uh, a student of mine here at UCLA and myself have been gathering data uh, data on labor protests in Iran since 2009. Mm-hmm. Totally uncovered in Western media, and I'm going to give you a little scoop here, Susie. Okay. That in, you know, in the 70 plus cities where we have documented protests in the last week, um, about 70 of them had previous incidences of a of a of a labor protest in the last five years. Yeah. And if you count the number of labor protests since 2013, since the election of Hassan Rouhani, each year they've gone up, and the relative share of protests in the provinces versus Tehran has gone up. So more labor unrest, and, we're not, and we didn't count, by the way. We got all this data from local newspapers. We didn't count in this database other types of protests, which there have been, environmental, uh, you know, student, et cetera. We counted just labor protests over issues like wage arrears, pension payments, um, and also uh, protests for independent trade associations. It's been going up since 2013, and it's been becoming more and more of a provincial nature. Now, when that happens, and this happens in lots of cities, it seems like the local police had already interacted with these people. Sometimes they arrest, arrest the, you know, the head, and then they let everybody else go. It's a common tactic. But there's this kind of there's been a wave of unrest building in Iran since 2013 
focused on socioeconomic issues, with the protagonists being uh, individuals who either are, you know, kind of in the service sector, teachers, government employees, uh, factory workers, and retired uh, individuals who used to work for the public sector. Is this the sector of support for the regime? I mean, you're talking about lower-level workers, but also some professional workers and public sector workers. What is the support for this regime? I'm not an expert. It always seemed to be more rural than urban. Is that the case? This has long been asserted by, you know, so-called experts, I'll just be blunt, so-called experts on Iran who don't read Persian, who haven't traveled to the country in 35 or 40 years, (laughs) who probably have their interlocutors uh, being exiled dissidents, right? Right. And dissidents are fine. I mean, I have many many of my best friends are dissidents. However, uh, you know, as someone who's trying to understand the country, I, I, I have to question all the assumptions and see evidence for myself. I always uh, was a bit skeptical of the idea that the state and the political establishment had a so-called base in the poorest, rural, less educated parts of society. I mean, in many ways, of course, it's often asserted that these individuals who get, they get all the goodies from the oil revenues of the state, from the welfare and charity religious organizations funded by the state. But, you know, I wrote a whole book on this, as you mentioned, and I looked into this question, and the main benefit, beneficiaries of the welfare system of the Islamic Republic are the middle class, just like in any developing country, actually, other than maybe, you know, Cuba or something. You know, uh, it's middle classes who have the access to pretty good, I mean, pretty good pension systems, good health care systems, access to uni- expanded university systems. Um, not like the poor classes haven't been transformed by the revolution. They have. They have. But if you take a look at the kind of what's the status quo today, it is the middle, middle and upper stratum of the population that is more connected to the state. Of course, you see, but therefore I can't say, oh, they're the base of the regime, right? But I do want to question the idea that, that someone sitting in a small town, uh, who his life or her life has been transformed by the changes in Iran after the revolution, has more access to education, more access to media, basic needs and living standards have been taken care of. However, inequality, like in many you know, countries, is is looking at them stark in the face. Life chances are totally unequal between someone living in one of these cities and someone living in Tehran. Now, I used to travel all around Iran, and boy, people would complain about Tehran. It's kind of like people in the rest of France complaining about Paris. You know, there's the people over there, and then there's me, and I have nothing in common with them, and those people look down on me. And it's that kind of resentment that fueled some of the grievances. I'm Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm speaking with Kevin Harris. And the book that he mentioned is called A Social Revolution, Politics and the Welfare State in Iran. That's his book just out from UC Press, or just out last year. So let's go back now, because you've just raised the kind of the meatiest issue, and that is that this is really affecting, are you calling this the middle class sectors the most and, and questioning what the basis of support toward the regime is? And Implicit in all of this is that Iran has also been imposing austerity in the way that most of the neoliberal you know, policies around the world have been in the last period as a response to the crisis or you know, maybe as a political response as well. Let me get a little bit more of kind of panorama of what the grievances are, who's being attacked the most – and what danger exists in this for the regime. And then after that, we'll talk about what effect maybe Trump and the U.S. have had on it. 
Right. Well, I do want to give the listeners a sense of the of the kind of discourse, the public media environment, okay. in which these protesters, you know, took made their claims and demanded change. Since 2013, there's been a relative open if the election of Hassan Rouhani after the uh, previous administration of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. So the uh, the you know the media environment since 2013 has been wider. The competition between different segments of the political establishment. That's why I don't use the word regime, because regime implies that everybody there gets along and they kind of all agree and they're all in it together. Mm. Certainly they don't think of it themselves that way. So I use the word political establishment, like, you know, in the 60s. -hmm. But they're divided into a bunch of different factions or tendencies, and they fight all the time, and they accuse each other of all kinds of malfeasances publicly in media. And since 2013, there's been a huge rise in accusations from all sides against each other of corruption, of misuse of public funds, of uh, the population not getting the benefits of uh, negotiations with the West, uh, of the proposed reforms by the government of Hassan Rouhani being useless or counterproductive. So these are flying around in the media and in everyday conversations for the last four years. So it's not surprising to me that individuals have been hearing this, reading this, seeing it confirmed in their daily experiences. And when a wave comes of protest, some people decide to take part, and there's some ready-made set of grievances there for them, even if their own individual lives aren't like that. So I just want to give that point, that political competition in Iran is real. And it's the reality of competition that provided both a space for this protest to take shape. So there wasn't just this immediate crackdown by a unified political establishment, uh, maybe comparatively to 2009. Although 2009 protests also lasted a couple weeks and petered out. But also, actually, this competition has produced all kinds of grievances about corruption that are ready-made for anybody to take up and utilize. This is really good. So that you're talking about the political competition within the elite and the various factions. And I asked you, is it the middle classes that are being targeted by austerity and by the policies and then maybe what's behind those policies? Okay, yeah, right. And also, this is where I disagree with a lot of my friends on the left. I don't throw around the word neoliberal unless I actually back that up with what does that mean in a specific, you know, a concrete instance. Uh, you get no like, argument from me on that exactly. one. Exactly. No, no. I know you and I are comrades on this. Uh, <laughs> you know, in the case of Iran, the problem here, and this is a bit of my problem with analysis from the very small left that writes on Iran, <laughs> um, including my friends in Iran. I have friends in Iran who write on left-wing sites, and I read their work. And so they usually combine everything into the single N-word. But the, <laughs> the, the state in Iran, I mean, the, you know, the administration in Iran uh, inherited essentially a rat's nest of bureaucracy from the previous government, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. They, you know, the left hand of the state and even left hand of every ministry didn't know what the right hand was doing. So some of the reforms or proposals or laws that have been passed or attempts that have made since 2013 have essentially been to figure out what the state is doing. Where is the public sector? Uh, who is getting money from the state? Like there are thousands and thousands of businesses that, that are tied to the state that get money, and the central government does, doesn't even know. Who is not paying taxes? Like there are lots of institutions that never pay taxes. How to get? How to expand the tax base? So these are kind of basic technocratic reforms. So you have technocrats. The problem with technocrats is they don't like to do politics. They just think that they're a bunch of experts. This is why you know they, people get resent them. So they have a kind of set of policies to centralize, reform the state, 
arguably to lure in foreign capital and to make private capital at home uh, more e- uh, feel at ease in investing in uh, you know formerly public companies, right? So that's the political economy that is separate, although it's linked, but it's separate analytically from um, economic reforms. And so what happened also? What are these? Uh, an austerity budget. An austerity budget. So not only because of declining oil revenues, but uh, more importantly because inflation was so high under Ahmed Inijad, these guys under Rahani thought, we have to cut the budget because the main driver of inflation is state spending. Whether that's true or not is a debate. But they cut the budget on a lot of programs. To their credit, they did expand health care uh, in 2014-15. Actually, health care got a lot better in Iran over the last few years, <laughs> access to health care. But uh, the state was in debt and continues to be in debt to so many public organizations that wage arrears are a huge problem. Almost all of the protests that we documented over the last four years uh, with labor uh, underpinnings were about issues of not getting paid. Like in China, this happens in China all the time. It like happened in, in the Soviet Union a lot, uh, too, yeah. especially in the period of so-called reform. That's right. That's mm. right. That's right. So, so a lot of these are wage arrears. Pensioners all of a sudden their pension check isn't coming for two, three, four months. And you could say that's neoliberals. They go say that the state doesn't. Again, more of the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. The main where the accusation of neoliberalism sticks, I think, and you can call it what you want, but that the strategy of the Rahadi administration was okay. Well, we can't defeat or purge our opponents in the government. The right wing's here to stay. They have control over a lot of unelected institutions. What we can do is we can lock them in by bringing in foreign investment. And so once foreign investment is here. It's going to be very hard to, um, to kick them out because everybody's going to be on the take. And that will sp- – I don't think they believe that foreign investment alone is going to lead to some kind of growth miracle in Iran. But they thought that that at least was a necessary condition to kickstart the economy and then the employment problem, the provincial kind of uneven development problem, those could be addressed as well. That was the gamble. I mean, that's to take them seriously at their own strategy. That was the gamble. The problem was that the time horizon on that project is like 10 years, even if it all worked well, 10, 15 years. And it's been four years. It's been two years since the deal was signed with the West, and they were over-promising already. So that, to me, that's my read on, on, um, on that. You know, in many ways, people should understand, uh, and people who study social movements, who belong to social movements, know there's no direct link between economic crises and protest. I mean, t- look at Turkey in 2013 and the Gezi Park exactly. uh, protest. That Good was point. after 10 years of growth. But people had grievances for reasons of inequality, of uneven distribution of that growth. In Iran, growth picked up for the last few years. But the, this, if you look at uh, who got the income gains, this is actually very interesting. It almost all went to Tehran. So, again, this is a sort of center-periphery kind of maldistribution that we've seen elsewhere. I think, I mean, yeah, the center-periphery dynamic, which is in any, you know, large country with a kind of single capital, you know, the French, the French model, yeah, I think, yeah. I think that's an important dynamic. And, I mean, one could be a bit even, uh, I mean, this is totally speculation, but the 2009 protests in Iran, largely in Tehran, uh, you know, millions of people in the street for a couple days, scared the bejesus out of the political establishment, so they were like, okay, we have to give these people something, and now... It's the rest of the country which is doing it. So this so, makes you know. total sense. I wanted to ask you, Kevin, this is just really, really comprehensive and 
excellent. This is better than I could have hoped for in terms of helping us understand what's really going on in Iran today. But the other side of it is, has there been any ill economic effect from the sanctions? And has the austerity and the problems in the economy had anything to do with relations outside and now the so-called Iran deal? I think that there's no question that the Trump administration, as the Obama administration beforehand, did not want and actively tried to convince American companies to not have anything to do with Iran. In fact, the Obama administration was just like, yeah, we, we know that American companies will not because of pressure from Congress and from uh, interest groups in Washington. The hope was that European capital, which already had relationships with Iran, we have to remember that Italian capital, German capital, French capital had long been in Iran before the revolution, after the revolution, all the way through 2005, 6, 7, up until the Obama administration put the real stranglehold on the uh, Iran's financial system. The most uh, by the way, the most sh- um, intense stricture of any country's economy uh, uh, anybody's ever documented outside of uh, siege. I mean, if everybody says that Obama was soft on Iran. Uh, that's not how I remember it, and that's not how many uh, <laughs> bankers in Iran remember it. Um, so the hope was that, well, with the financial sanctions uh, lifted, European capital would come. But the problem is, what capital is going to invest in a 10, 20, 30-year uh, deal? in an Iranian sector, even an Iranian sector that guarantees high profits when there's the sword of Damocles hanging over your head that Europe's not going to back you if the United States decides to, to take you into court. There's been no promises from the Trump administration that uh, European capital will not be subject to sanction in the future. And so, you know, capitalists are, are not risk takers. <laughs> they like the easy money. So the easy money is not in Iran yet. And uh, so capital has been trickling in, and there's no great uh, investments outside of maybe something, few in oil and gas and, and uh, transportation that the government in Iran can point to and say, yeah, we're doing it. Second, even if European capital comes, what kind of job generation is that going to make in Iran, given the you know, high youth unemployment in that country? Youth unemployment is probably around 15%, but a lot of youth just kind of leave the job market. So the data on youth unemployment, as reported in the news, doesn't understand how middle how political economies work and how labor markets work, but I, I mean, my opinion is that a lot of youth just leave the job market um, and wait for older people to leave uh, their jobs and they enter it. And so, you know, the kind of job creation that would be required, uh, like, in, you know, I mean, to absorb this semi-skilled and skilled population is not going to be created by foreign capital. That's a chimera. Um, and so even that, even let's say foreign capital was flying in, even that alone would not would not do it. Nevertheless, that's the real uh, that's the real generation generator of insecurity. Not the sanctions themselves. The sanctions themselves, especially from the United States uh, specifically, they didn't have a, a huge impact on Iran uh, other than the financial sanctions. Why? Because the Americans have never been in Iran since '79. Kevin, we've just about run out of time, and God, I have so many other questions I want to ask you. I guess maybe in just one final wrap-up, given everything that you've just said, the poverty data that's come out, the character of the regime, let's call it the political establishment, which I really want to hear more about, but maybe you could just kind of wrap it up and also talk about where you think it's going with this protest movement. Protests have been endemic to the Islamic Republic since 1979. This idea that there hasn't been protests that the protest hasn't had an effect on the character of the state, on the nature of the state institutions, is a myth. In fact, protest uh, has been occurring in Iran 
since 1979, it's a revolutionary society in the sense of people uh, have, have memories or at least have stories of protests from previously. And think about it. Every 10 years, there's a major upsurge in the country. What other country can we say? As this, you know, other than, you know, a couple of Latin American cases, you know. I'm talking about major. We have 20 seconds. So it's going to shake up the political elite as it did in 2009. People will try to take advantage of it. But hopefully at least a more responsive outcome from some segment of the elite will occur. Kevin Harris, thank you so much for wrapping it up. We're going to invite you back and have a much longer discussion on the nature of Iran. Clearly, you've got great things to say about it. And for the listeners, he's got an article in New Left Review, but more importantly, his new book, A Social Revolution, Politics and the Welfare State in Iran, published by UC Press. Kevin Harris is an historical sociologist at UCLA and is the co-director of Sistich, or Brenner Center, as we call it here, that's starting its program at the end of this month. Kevin Harris, thanks so much for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Kevin thank Harris. you for telling me how to pronounce Sistich. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> Talk soon. I'm Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Don't go away. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Dean Baker is joining us. He's co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C., and the author of many works, including Plunder and Blunder, The Rise and Fall of the Bubble Economy, and The Conservative Nanny State, How the Wealthy Use the Government to Stay Rich and Get Richer. And he had a piece in the American Prospect Online recently that caught my attention and would catch the attention of, I think, everybody here in Southern California, which called rubbing salt in the wounds of Republicans. And SALT, of course, is the acronym for state and local income taxes. And he's got some ideas about how California can counter the deliberately targeted attack on California and the other so-called high-tax blue states with this new so-called tax plan. We should just call it tax cuts for the 0.001% by severely limiting the deductions on state and local income tax and mortgage deductions. So, Dean Baker, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Thanks for having me on. I invited you on so you could help untangle what this means and really as well look at the state of the economy. And I, I say that even though we're going to start with the tax plan, but just for our listeners as well, that it appears that we're right in the middle of another bubble very similar to the one that led to the crash in 2007-8. So I wanted to get your take on how fragile the economy is and why it is that the mainstream media seems to be doing nothing but borrowing the talking points of those who are touting growth and wage gains with little deeper analysis and, in fact, using the exact same verbiage. Why don't we just start right there and then move to the tax plan? Well, I'm actually not particularly concerned about the economy right now. I don't think it's bubble-driven. I was actually jumping up and down yelling about the housing bubble. I think you had to be pretty blind not to see it, at least if you're an economist. And before that, the stock bubble in 98, 99, 2000, and both those crashes did give us a recession. The second one, obviously, the housing bubble being much more serious than the stock bubble. But I don't really see that story today. Um, Those bubbles were both very clearly driving the economy. Um, The run-up in stock prices, it's substantial. It's nowhere near as much as what we had in the late 90s. 
and also we have a much lower interest rate uh, environment. I won't go into details, but uh, basically what you expect is that um, stock prices depend in part on alternative investments. And back in the late 90s, a 10-year Treasury bond was around 5% uh, interest. Currently, a 10-year Treasury bond is around 2.5%. So it doesn't surprise me in that context you have higher stock prices. And on top of that, it's really not driving this, the economy. It was in the, the late 90s. You had a huge investment boom um, directly tied to the stock market because bozos could raise <laughs> hundreds of millions, even billions, with really harebrained projects. And they actually were using it to invest. It was wasted, but it did drive the economy that way. And it also had a spending effect. Uh, people were, were consuming a lot. We do see a little bit of that. Consumption is high. Um, so we do see a little bit of that. But even if the market were to fall, say, 20 percent, um, I don't it 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 wouldn't likely throw the economy into a recession. It would slow the economy, no doubt about that. But it would not throw into a recession, and certainly nothing like the story we had in 2001, let alone the disaster of 2008-2009. So I really don't see a terribly bad story on the horizon. Well, let me ask you this. You're saying that consumption is up after, I guess, a period of when it was down. And we all saw an article recently that there have been wage gains, particularly in the blue collar areas, those more manual labor jobs. Is this the case? Are we seeing, you know, finally, after all of this time with no spending, that there is some investment in labor? We are seeing some increase in wages. What's happening is you do have a tightening labor market, and employers, to some extent, uh, are starting to compete for workers by raising wages. I mean, that's kind of the textbook story. That's what you want to see. Um, we weren't seeing that, obviously, two, three, four years ago when there was still a lot of slack in the labor market. Workers were struggling for jobs. But as the labor market has tightened, you do find that employers are raising wages in many cases uh, in order to keep workers or to get workers away from their competitors. So that's a positive story. We have a long, long way to go, just to be clear. So I don't want to say things are great. They're just going in the right direction. But if we look at this last period, one in which there was those who were in business were hoarding cash to ridiculous extremes, even to wonder what the function of capital was if they wouldn't convert money into capital. But now, and during this same period, there was demand, but no ability for people to actually buy the things that they needed to buy. And in fact, a contracting in every way. Are you seeing that now that that is part of the reason for that, that there's some understanding that if they're ever going to get out of this cycle, people have to earn more money? I don't think employers are ever thinking about the economy as a whole. I think they're thinking about their bottom line. And I think they're, insofar as they are raising wages, it's because they need additional workers and they can't find them at the wages they're offering. So they're offering higher wages. So I think that's, you know, again, that's a story you would like to see uh, that should more typically be the case in, in an economy, that firms are competing for workers and have to raise wages. It certainly has not been the case, certainly since 2008. Um, it's not clear how much was the case even in 2006, 2007, the years before the, the Great Recession, because that wasn't exactly a great period for the economy. It was certainly better than what came later. But it does, uh, we're looking at the lowest unemployment rate we've had since 2000, and you have to, before 2000, you'd have to go back to 73 to get the unemployment rate this low. So, scheme of things, we do have a relatively tight labor market. Again, there's reasons why it's a little more complicated. We have a lot of people that left the labor market, prime age workers, I'm not talking about retirees, people are 25 to 54, they're not, they're, they're, they're not retired. So a lot of people left the labor market during the, the Great Recession, and I'm sure a lot of those 
want to come back will come back if they see job opportunities. So it's still not a fantastic labor market, but definitely going in the right direction and much, much better than, say, it was two years ago. In the same article that discussed the fact that there's wage gains at the lower end, it said that the true unemployment rate would be closer to 8.1%, but I think a lot of economists would even say it's higher than that. Could you shed a little light on that? Well, there's other factors you could include. So we have around 5 million people that are working part-time and would like full-time jobs. So they're working part-time for economic reasons. So that would add somewhere around 2.5 percentage points to the unemployment rate. We have other people who are asked, you know, you're, you're only kind of unemployed if you say you were looking for a job in the last month. Right. So we have a lot of people that have given up looking for work. And if you throw the, that number in, it's somewhere around 1.3, 1.4 million. That would add another, say, half, six-tenths of a percentage point. So when you add in these categories where you don't have, where, where people didn't say that they were looking for a job and couldn't find it, but clearly they're not working as much as they want to, they're either working part-time or they've given up looking for work, you'd get somewhere around 8%. Again, I haven't looked at the latest number on that, but we definitely have more people who would like to work or work at full-time jobs than currently have them. I'm Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm speaking with Dean Baker, and we're looking at, first of all, the situation in the economy as a whole, and then we'll be looking at the tax cuts. But there's another question I wanted to ask related to what you just said about the fact that we're seeing things moving in the right direction to a degree, and wages are going up. Unemployment is, even though not counted correctly, let's say, or in a way that really helps us understand, it is going down. But the other side of it is, and I I know this must be true where you live, but it's certainly very, very visible in the streets of Los Angeles that homelessness is exploding. And it's everywhere. And it's because also rents are out of control. And there, and this seems to be a knock-on effect from the housing crisis. And maybe you, you, you wrote a recent blog saying that without rent, inflation is way below the Fed's 2.0% target. Can you talk a little bit about what's happened to rents and why it's the case? Yeah, we're seeing extraordinary run-ups in rent. So when we look at the inflation number every month, the, the overall inflation rate uh, over the last year has been around 2%, give or take. And it's a common a for economists to pull out what we call, uh, well, look at the core index. It pulls out uh, food prices and energy prices. The reason for that, those, those jump around. So this isn't in terms of measuring people's living standards. We understand people need to buy gas, they need to eat, you know, so, so it's not for living standards purposes, just trying to get measure the underlying rate of inflation. That's been around 1.7%. But then if you say, okay, let's, what does that look like if you pull rent out? And that's just been about a half percent. So a very big part of the picture is rents. And rents aren't rising rapidly everywhere. This is very much, uh, to a large extent, a West Coast phenomena. It had been true in some of these coast cities, certainly here in D.C., in New York, Boston, but in recent, uh, the last, I don't know, half year or so, uh, the rate of increase in rents has slowed sharply in, in all the East Coast cities, or at least most of them. But in West Coast cities, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, rents are rising very, very rapidly. And my guess, I'm not experts on those mar- markets, those housing markets, but basically it looks to me like it's a story where you have very rapidly growing economies and you have, on the one hand, uh, people making a lot of money, rich people who are taking up a lot of land, uh, getting bigger and uh, larger homes. And then for everyone else, there's less 
space available, and it's pushing up rents so that a lot of people can no longer afford it, even working people. So when you're talking about homeless people, my guess is probably a lot of the people are finding themselves homeless in L.A. and some of the other cities there are working. They probably don't have really high-paying jobs. I doubt they're getting 150000 a year or anything, but I suspect many of them are working. Right. So, I mean, this takes us really right into the tax plan, too, because part of what, you know, we've seen in this new tax cut plan is a, it seems that California, New York, other high tax blue states have been directly targeted. And they've been directly targeted in two ways. One is the state and local income tax deduction is being severely limited. But this one related to what we just talked about in rents, Dean Baker, is the mortgage deductions, which is highly popular. And the two of them together are being limited in this new tax cut, I don't know what we want to call it, I guess plan, that to $10,000. Now, you just talked about how the rental rates have skyrocketed. And of course, one reason is that there were so many foreclosures as well, and people are taking advantage of that uh, by moving to the rental market. But on the other hand, can you talk a little bit, just as just begin talking about the relationship to the mortgage deduction? Yeah, what they've done, the mortgage interest deduction actually hasn't changed all that much. So currently the cap on the amount you could deduct is $1 million. I shouldn't say currently they actually have signed that law. But prior to the law being passed, you, couldn't, you could not deduct interest on more than a $1 million in principle. So if you had a mortgage on a home of $1.2 million, you could deduct interest on a, the first million, the, the other 200000 you couldn't deduct the interest on. They've lowered that to 750000 So that person who has a $1.2 million mortgage, they can only deduct the interest on 750000 of the mortgage, so they would be stuck. They wouldn't be able to deduct the interest on 450000 of the mortgage. So they've lowered that amount, but it's still going to be fairly limited, even for relatively expensive home, because let's say you got a million-dollar home, and I understand in, in L.A. or particularly the Bay Area, that's not a hugely expensive home, but that's still <laughs> an awful lot of money. So let's say you got a mortgage of 900000 on that home. Well, you're able to deduct 750000 of that 900000 or the interest on 750000 of the 900000 So that doesn't have all that big an impact. So I wasn't terribly upset at that, and as a matter of policy, um, it's hard to see why we want to subsidize what we have to say are better off people. I mean, if you're able to buy a million dollar home, you're certainly doing better than, you know, probably 97% of the population. Why we want to subsidize these people to, to buy bigger, more expensive homes. So I, that, that's not a part of the tax bill I was upset about. But there is one part about it, and I think you're absolutely right, and that's sort of try to understand what the uh, reasoning behind it was because it looks like this tax plan is attacking the rich to coddle the very, very rich. And so, you know, because the very, very rich probably don't care that much about that tax deduction. But for the, let's call it, as you said, the top 3%, it can mean a lot. And it, of course, the other side of it is that the reason that we have it, I assume, this mortgage tax deduction is that it benefits the house, the construction industry, home building industry, all of that, which may, and as you say as well, it's not that big of a difference, but nonetheless, there's an attack there. Do you think it might do something to that whole sector of the economy? I think what you're talking about here is very, very limited impact uh, on the housing market because, again, it's a relatively small share of the market. 
and even there, the impact is, isn't that large. So, again, taking the case of the $1.2 million home, you're talking about 250000 in interest that you used to be able to deduct that you're no longer able to deduct. That's not zero, but that's not going to – the interest on that, I mean, just backing it out, say you're paying a 4% interest rate, it's 10000 a year, someone's in a 35% bracket, so that's 3500 a year in taxes. That's a good chunk of change. But on the other hand, someone who's in that home probably is making three, four, five hundred thousand a year. Um, they're not going to be happy about that, but that's not devastating, and that's that's the absolute extreme case. So, someone owning a eight, nine hundred thousand dollar home probably doesn't even affect them. So, you're really talking about a pretty small segment of the market. Okay, well, let's move then to the state and local income tax deduction that you wrote really quite ingeniously about. You come up with a way to kind of get around it. And now Kevin DeLeon in the California Senate has also come up with another way. But let's talk about what you've said in your article, Rubbing Salt in the Wounds of Republicans. Yeah, so what they've done, you mentioned earlier, they, they limited the amount of state and local taxes you could deduct. So this is both your property taxes and state and local income taxes. They put a limit of 10000 And certainly many you know upper-middle-income people, I'm not going to say low-income or middle-income people, but upper-middle-income, say it's 200000 a year, they could easily pay someone in the order of seven, eight, 9000 a year in property tax. Say they do have a home worth seven, eight hundred thousand, nine hundred thousand. So they could easily make up almost that full ten thousand just from their property taxes. I'm sure many do make up that full ten thousand just from their property taxes. Then they're also paying state income taxes on top of that. So just to take some simple numbers, I know California is a little higher than this, but let's just say it's five percent across the board. So someone will have them earning two hundred thousand a year. Well, they're paying ten thousand a year in taxes. And they're not able to deduct that because they're already deducting their property taxes. So this is going to be a hit to them. So this person earning 200000 a year, they're going to suddenly be paying 10000 they're, they're losing deductions on 10000 in income. So, again, depending which bracket they're in, we'll put them at the 32% bracket. That's another 3200 a year in taxes. So what I was saying is if instead of the income tax you had an employer-side payroll tax. So we all pay this indirectly. This is our employers paid on our behalf, but it comes out of our wages, or at least that's what most economists would say. So we all pay this for Social Security and Medicare. So Social Security, for example, is a 6.2% employee-side tax. We all see that come out of our paycheck. We're paying 6.2%. Our employer is also paying 6.2%. And again, most economists would say, well, that really comes out of our paychecks also. So our employer would be paying us 6.2% more if they didn't have to pay that payroll tax. So what I was suggesting here is suppose California, instead of having an income tax where, you know, I'm paying, you know, I was earning 200000 a year, I'm paying my 10000 income taxes, I can't deduct that, so I have to pay federal taxes on that as well. How about we just replace that and have a 5% employer-side payroll tax? So my employer will have to pay that 5%. And that leaves me unchanged relative to the state. So previously I had to send the state a check for 10000 Now my employer is going to send a check to the state for 10000 and they're probably going to slash my wages by 10000 So <laughs> okay. compared to the state, I end up being in the same spot. But the big advantage is now I'm only paying taxes, federal taxes, on 190000 a year rather than 200000 a year. So in effect, that 10000 is still fully tax deductible. So it allows California to avoid the tax increase that the Republicans had intended to impose on them. Could you just explain a little bit more, Dean Baker? So but you said that this actually has 
no impact whatsoever on the employee, except for the fact it's now fully deductible. But in terms of whether, you know, who pays the tax will make no difference in terms of what that person takes home. That's right. So previously, I got 200000 from my employer, and I had to send 5% of that $10,000 to the state as income tax. Now, <clears throat> because my employer has to send 10000 to the state as a payroll tax, my employer is only going to give me 190000 but I don't have to pay any state income tax. And when Donald Trump wants me to pay federal income tax, I go, oh, my income's 190000 It's not 200000 So, in effect, I still have a fully deductible state tax. Can you imagine the pushback on this if it were to become policy by employers? Well, I don't think employers will care. New York is very serious on this. The governor, uh, Cuomo, has been talking about this. I've been in touch with members of his staff. They're very, very serious about that, and they're working with employers because they, at the end of the day, they don't care. They're gonna, they will take it out of workers' wages. It might not happen everywhere and all at once, and since many of them just got this huge tax cut, maybe they won't take it out of wages. That'd be kind of nice, but, you know, I don't count on them being nice. But in any case... They, they, at the end of the day, shouldn't really care. They're, they're making, it doesn't require any big increase in their paperwork because they, they deduct taxes from your paycheck anyhow. And so it would be a one-time change in the calculation that, you know, again, they all should be able to do pretty quickly. They have software. It's really not a hard process. So I don't think employers will raise a big fuss with it. And, again, they understand uh, these people aren't stupid. I mean, they understand that the state's going to be taking a serious hit if they don't do something to alter their income tax structure, because suddenly you'll have a lot of people that are subject to much higher taxes, and they aren't going to like that. So so it only makes sense for the state to try to do something like this. And I expect, uh, sure, some employers will yell and scream, say they're too dumb to figure it out, and some might well be. But as a practical matter, it really should be a matter of indifference to them. Finally, Dean Baker, what about, I'm assuming that you have seen what uh, Kevin DeLeon is introducing, which is that people will, instead of their state and local income tax will be given as a charitable loan to the state and make it fully deductible. Is this some viable solution? Well, I'm not a tax lawyer. I mean, I'm for anything that California, New York, and the other states could do to try and preserve their revenue so that they can maintain level of services. I mean, clearly, this is, it was very explicit. I mean, the Republicans weren't hiding it at all. This was, you know, we're going to whack those people in California who think they should have good schools and good health care and make them all like Louisiana, where they have really horrible schools and really horrible health care. And so I, Anything that California could do, I would just say I'm not a tax lawyer. It just, it it sounds questionable to me. It's not going to be my call. I have no expertise in the area, but the idea that the state could say, oh, make a contribution to these designated funds and we'll give you 100% uh, credit on your taxes, that sounds dubious to me. But if that will fly with, with the courts, by all means, do it. On that last point of yours, that you know what they, that there was no secret about the real purpose behind this is to punish the blue states and also to, in I guess by implication, uh, not have any examples of government service that actually do well by their citizens. Are we back to the kind of I guess pre Civil War economy or just post Civil War economy? Is that what seems to be their trajectory? Clearly, the Republicans are looking to attach every aspect of the welfare state that they can. I mean, again, they've not made any secrets of it. Paul Ryan has been quite open that he wants to 
privatized Medicare, privatized Social Security, hugely cut back Medicaid. They've already taken some steps in the, that direction. Uh, with uh, while well, they still haven't funded the child and uh, child uh, health uh, insurance program, it's uh, been unfunded for now three months. I think three and a half months. I think it expired September thirtieth. So they want to cut back every form of social support that they can. Thus far, they haven't done that much, but that clearly is their goal, and they're pretty explicit with it. So insofar as you have more progressive states, California being the most important, obviously, that could resist that, that's a really, really huge deal. And one of the points, having been watching a long time, uh, one of the points I realized, I could point to what they're doing in Denmark, what they're doing in Germany, and people look at me like, okay, so what's new on Mars? <laughs> but if I could say they're doing this in Ohio, they're doing this in California, then people say, well, why can't we do this in Missouri? Why can't we do that? You know, so having those states go, look, California is able to do these things. It has a good economy, and people, they're, they're helping out their people, and even the poorest people can count on X, Y, and Z. I know that's not always as true as we want it to be, but you're certainly better off in California than you are in Louisiana. They don't want that. Right. So finally, I guess this is the very last question. I really appreciate the time you've given us today, Dean Baker. But there's also this other aspect that uh, some, you know, Michael Hiltzik just wrote in a column uh, over the new year that in essence, the Republicans win because they can get journalists to use their language and their talking points. So instead of talking about cuts to Medicare and Social Security, they talk about entitlement reform using that, you know, loaded language that, you know, many people hated Obamacare, but really like the uh, uh, Affordable Care Act. Is it, What is your idea on any of this? And how much is how important is this that, you know, there be a campaign to get people to call things as they are? hugely important. I mean, it, it's infuriating me when they talk about reform. I always go, oh, yeah. well, let's have some military reform. We'll cut <laughs> it by 50%. I mean, it, it, it really is double talk, because they're not... We could talk about reform in terms of restructuring it, and, you know, can we make sure checks get out more quickly, that there are fewer mistakes. That, that's reform. They aren't... This is not their agenda. They're talking about cuts, and it really is just dishonest to refer to, A, entitlements, because people don't know what entitlements are. In Washington, we all know what they are. People do budget work. But there's Social Security and Medicare. Everyone knows what Social Security and Medicare are, so why don't you use the term Social Security and Medicare? And it's just really irresponsible of reporters because their job is to inform people. And this this is not a debatable point. I mean, you go down the street and ask people what entitlements are, and Most people probably heard the term. They don't really have a clear idea. But if you say, what's Social Security? What's Medicare? Everyone knows what they are. So why don't you just use the terms that everyone knows what they are? And they know they pay into them as well. So why is it that, you know, that that money isn't theirs? Exactly. And, again, it's this idea of, you know, putting a veil over what they're doing. And, again, the job of reporters is supposed to be informed people. That's fine. You don't have to say it's bad that they want to cut Social Security and Medicare. Just say they want to cut Social Security and Medicare because that, that is their agenda, and that's what people have to understand. And it's important to point out, I've seen a lot of polling data on this, there really is very little difference between Democrats and Republicans on these issues. If you ask, do you want to cut Social Security and Medicare, it's high 70s, even 80% of Republicans will say no. So it's not, it's really not a partisan issue. It's just a question of, you know, a relatively small number of rich people who see middle-income, low-income people getting money, and they go, oh, we don't want that. But the vast majority of people voted for Donald Trump. They don't want to see these programs cut. 
Right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but I want to thank you so much for ending on that note, Dean Baker. And we look forward to more of your writing and seeing you more here on this program. Dean Baker is co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C., the author of several books, including Plunder and Blunder, The Rise and Fall of the Bubble Economy. And you can find his blogs at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. And he has article very recently, January 2nd, Rubbing Salt in the Wounds of Republicans at the American Prospect. Dean Baker, thanks for joining us on Jacobin Radio. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.